Hello again, this is Jason Brand, Human Nurture Podcast. I'm a couples therapist in Berkeley, California. And as you know, in this season, we've been exploring the how-to of couples therapy. Well, today's going to be a little bit of a departure from the usual format. But before we get into that, I want to do the disclaimer. We'll be discussing clinical information in this episode of Human Nurture. However, it's not intended as a substitute for therapy or clinical advice. Education and entertainment is the intent. If you or someone you know is looking for therapy, please seek out the appropriate help, and please don't substitute what you hear in this podcast for clinical advice or counseling. So editing my own interviews, it always comes along with some pain, and after 30-some-odd episodes, I've gotten used to some of that discomfort, the discomfort of listening to myself and imagining how you might be hearing it. But as I edited the two interviews I recorded with John Guy, I noticed a different kind of discomfort, and it was clearly because we were discussing race. I tried putting this discomfort into words with colleagues, but I always felt like something was missing in the conversation. With my colleagues of color, I felt like I was asking something of them that they couldn't really give to me, a kind of seal of approval that I was doing a good job. And with my white colleagues, I felt like the conversation kind of fell apart and just came back to this well-worn idea of, yeah, well, talking about race is challenging. None of this is a comment about my colleagues. I see it 100% as my own need to do some thinking and to open up some locked areas inside myself. So I was settling into the idea that it was best just to leave this, that I'd take it up on my own, but not include it as part of the podcast. And that's when an article arrived from Inga Gentile. You'll remember Inga from a couple episodes back. Please check it out. It's wonderful. The 2021 article entitled The White Man in the Room, Finding My Position as a White Therapist, was published by the British Journal of Psychotherapy and written by Daniel Weir. It gave me some much-needed perspective as a way forward and expressing some of the things that I was thinking about and wanted to bring to the podcast. The article helped me to see that my discomfort was most pronounced in the brief moments when I had to define my own racial identity as a white man. I can't say that I even noticed this discomfort in the interviews with John. I only saw it when I had to create something coherent in the editing process, and only then it was in these flashes that I caught of myself. The article gave me some different tools for thinking about why it might be hard to see my own identity. And it also makes some great links to psychoanalytic ideas and provides some perspectives that I found immediately useful. So who is Daniel Weir? He's in private practice in Southwest London. This paper was written as part of his qualifying to become a psychoanalytic psychotherapist in 2020. I'm excited to have him on the show. He also said that you can email him directly. His email will be in the show notes if you want to read his paper. So let's start out by hearing Daniel discuss the journey that he took after a brief clinical encounter with his patient, who he refers to as Jerome. I've described in the paper a very brief moment in which I feel that what is being said in the room relates to race and relates specifically perhaps also to what's been taking place between my patient and I. There's a situation in which I decide that at some level what is being talked about is actually perhaps more relevant between us in the room together than the external situation that's being described. And and so I, I wonder out loud what my patient's experience of the two of us being different by race, him being black, me being white, is what he thinks about that. Now, at at the time, I think having felt myself to be reasonably aware, and certainly my training involved some, I think, reasonable considerations of race and, and, and the way in which it can operate in a consulting room, 
the very question itself caused, I, th I think, probably quite considerable pain for my patients. It was what he described actually as, as a breach. It created a breach that then took some time for us, in a sense, to re-establish our, our working relationship, ability to feel connected to a more therapeutic process. In talking about it with my patient, in talking about the breach, I began to realise that he wasn't in therapy because of his race. He wasn't in therapy because of racism. That racism, in a way, was a large part of his life. It was a very large part, I think, most likely of his agony. But that wasn't what he was in therapy for, I don't think. And in fact, as that became clear to me, I started to realise that this was not his problem, but mine. It was work that I needed to do. I needed to feel, I think, some of that agony, to take some responsibility for it. And I'm not sure if you've been on a similar journey to me, but I think once you start to do that, you start to see the agony in a different light and everywhere, very sadly, just how much it is still, I think, thriving in our societies. In calling attention to the breach, Jerome gave Daniel a glimpse of himself that would require further exploration. My experience prior to the journey of this paper which is, I think, in a way, was a journey of discovering what I would suggest as being a racial identity, or certainly to begin to think about having a racial identity as a white man. That, that journey, prior to that journey taking place, I don't think I took a, a position. I was, in a sense, positionless. And that ties in, I think, with what I talk about in the paper in terms of the way in which white people, I think, often don't experience themselves as racial subjects. They are invisible. Their whiteness is invisible amongst themselves, amongst white people, I think, very often, perhaps, but certainly on a subjective level. So to take one's position, I think, is to find oneself to be a racial subject in the wider culture and to have something like a, an awareness of one's race within oneself as well. The, certainly the effect that it has upon other people. And I would say especially other people who are non-white. Certainly how I've understood what happened is that was one of the moments. In, in asking the question, I became the white man in the room. And in a sense, I stopped being, for however brief a, a moment in time, I, I was not the therapist that Jerome had come to know. I was, I suspect, experienced as being very naive or unaware of taking a position of power and denial at the same time as to my own difference. And I think effectively what had happened is in asking the very question, I had very unconsciously suggested that he was the one who was different, which I, I think is very different from had I taken a position of difference myself from saying, you and I are both different from each other, let's talk about it. Now, that, that sounds perhaps rather complicated. I'm not sure if it's come across as clearly as I might hope. It, it's quite subtle, and yet I think it's also very powerful. 
and I think it's probably something about a, an attitudinal position. So the, the same question, I, I'm not sure I would quite word it in the same way. I, I think there are different ways of asking the same question that communicate different, entirely different things. And I think the way I, I asked the question was from a, an assumed raceless position, as it were. The assumption was that he was the black man and he was different from me, not that the difference between us was shared and certainly not that it was shared equally. And hmm. I think that's what probably caused pain because I, I had become, I had demonstrated a, an area, I think, of myself that had not been fully thought about and, and, and brought within my own personality, as it were, that of a white man specifically. The white man in the room was really the way my patient found to explain what he felt had happened between he and I in, in this moment that I've described. And it's particularly striking. I, th I found that a great gift, actually, in a sense, for my understanding as to what was going on. So Daniel sets out to try to understand what happened in this moment with Jerome. And the journey begins with his noticing his own discomfort. Yes, for me, it begins with discomfort. And it's a, a sort of discomfort that I, I think has been, looking back, most likely ever present in these sorts of situations, it, which is to say in situations where there is difference that can be starkly felt or identified in some way. It may well go beyond race, but I, I think race is a very good example of this. But there is this discomfort, which for me, as a white man, I think has very easily, both within myself and in the culture around me, been ignored or dismissed or not brought into consciousness as something to do with, with race or as something which is the other person's, which is to say that I might have said, even clinically, and I think this is the risk, I might have said that it was my patient that made me uncomfortable, mm. which would have, we can imagine the implications of, of that had, had I taken that route. And I, I suspect it often we, we do, because it's it, in some ways it might be natural to us to do so. We feel a discomfort. We think of that perhaps as a counter-transference response. We make use of it in, in whatever way we do, but it's there for our thinking. But the, the, the risk is that we think it's been caused by the patient and, and not that it's something to do with our own lack of position or, or lack of awareness. The word discomfort really sticks out to me. And I liked what you said, that one way that you could have read this was that the discomfort lies in him. It's not your discomfort. It's his discomfort in talking about race and thinking about race and that being called into the room. But instead, it sounds like what this opened up in you is a place where you thought, I've got some real thinking to do about myself and about my own position in the room, my own identity, as you say, and that occupying this positionless space has pathological roots to it, if not as a pathological creation, that positionless is okay, that positionless is where we can just feel comfortable being within that role. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think we have work to do as white men specifically, because 
we are talking then also not just about ourselves as individuals, as white men, but as white men within a society and, and, and a world, really, in, in which white men specifically are dominant. And I think it, it strikes me that much of the reading I did on this journey, on the journey of writing the paper, was written by women, for starters. A, a lot of the powerful work, I think, that's been done has come from women and feminism in therapy historically. And I think it also brings in the notion of power, because I, I, I think this is where the idea of the notion of white privilege becomes important, because that, f- for me, is an expression of power. It, it's the privilege that we have to not do the work that we're now talking about, you and I, it, that, that it's the privileged uh, position to not have to think about race, to not have to experience race, to not have to experience ourselves as racial subjects. seems to me that's likely to be quite common amongst many white people. Of course, my concern was driven from the clinical experience of myself as a white man. But it, it has huge implications because I, I, I think we, we can look out at society, as I did, and we can see that there is racism in the world. And we can see that this racism is being acted out. And, and depending on our capacity, we can see that racism is systemic, that it, it's almost built into the structures of our society. I think what's harder to grasp is that system in a way, can also exist on the inside of us. It can be a subjective experience so that we are, in a sense, systematically set up in a way that might be very unconsciously racist. It's very important, I think, to distinguish that from overt racism. People sometimes wear their racism as a badge. It's something that they are identified with consciously. I'm talking about something far more subtle, I think in many ways more dangerous, because it allows us to pretend that while we can look to culture and say, well, yes, that is racist, and I can see racism there, I am not racist myself. And and I think the problem with that is that we're not racist until we discover that we are. And and we discover that we are through our discomfort, ultimately. Um, Very different to intentional sort of conscious hatred of of difference of the other for the fact that it's so tricky to get hold of and 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 so tricky to find an experience i mean it, it arose for me i think in the discomfort we have work to do i think i can say that my discomfort was a feeling there were a lot of different feelings within it i had a lot that i wanted to say that i felt myself start and stop a sort of herky-jerky action to my speech And then there was also this sort of worry about saying the wrong thing that could be misconstrued as racist and then backfire in my face as somehow paranoid fantasies of canceling and all these kind of things. We don't need to really delve too deeply into my feelings. I'm going to put these in the category of this is a normal range of feelings that come up when we talk about our discomfort around race. And I think that one thing that I really enjoyed about your article is that you provide some ways of thinking about this that don't pull you into an abyss of either feeling so lost in it that there's you can't think about it or so bad about it that you just shut your mouth and not speak about it. 
And, and I think that this is a good time to bring in some of the thinkers, some of the wonderful thinkers that you relied upon in order to make sense of this. So can you paint that picture a little bit about where you went to find some ways of thinking about your discomfort? It's reasonable to suggest that what you've just described as, as far as your experience is fairly common because it's familiar to me. I think especially in a clinical setting, we really do have a very difficult job with this topic because we are, in a sense, trained. We are thinking, we are alerted to someone's very real pain that they're suffering. We are trying to be very in tune with another person or, or people at the same time as being in tune with ourselves and trying to think about all of that under fire, as it were, under fire in a sense, from what you're describing, from the, the potential of our own superego, our own aggression, the bit of us that's observing ourselves and maybe judgmentally, maybe anxiously preempting, watching what's being said and trying to gauge what's happening. And I think all of that arouses a, a great deal of anxiety under any circumstance, really. But that what we're trying to do with race is also hold an awareness that might think of ourselves, as I did, for example, as being non-racist, in fact, even anti-racist, and yet discover these discomforts within us whenever we start to talk about race. And I think the work really is about following that discomfort inside into sort of furthering our, our, our self-awareness as opposed to explaining a way as a whether we really would do this but explaining a way for example as a counter-transference response or feeling that this is something that the patient is is bringing yes my colleague celia harding who i've mentioned at the end of the paper i was very involved in discussing this with her she was also someone that, that taught me during my training. And in the paper, I, I mentioned a book by Vic Sedlak as well, that's, I think, really unpicks the struggle that we as clinicians have with superego phenomena. And I think Vic Sedlak in, in particular makes some very useful distinctions because firstly, he talks about the superego as taking sort of two forms. There's a pathological form, which would be, I suppose we might think of that as the part of us that might come in thinking in very black and white terms, very judgmental. That would come in and shut us down. It would stop us from speaking. And I think in an area of race where one often feels so alerted to the language one is using, I think we're immediately up against the possibility of inspiring a pathological superego response if we're monitoring ourselves as to whether we're using the right words to describe difference, to describe black people or white people or whatever, if we are fearing that, I think we're engaging with a potentially pathological superego that's working against us. That's a very real struggle. But I think he also defines something far more benign and useful to us, which is, I suppose I would think of it as our capacity to think critically, to actually think. The pathological superego is sort of anti-thinking. It's preventing us from using language in order to connect up 
in order to make links, in order to talk. And once that's in the room or within us, we can't speak, we can't find the words. We break up, our language slips away from us. We, we find ourselves feeling very uncomfortable. In its more benign form, we can let go of that sort of sense of fear, of, of judgment, and I think assess ourselves more realistically. This is what Sedlak is suggesting, that there's a gentler way of relating to our superego, which allows us to think about what we tell ourselves. Is it such a crime, as it were, to use that word or this word? Are we being too quick to judge ourselves? And what's the aim here? And I think the aim is to be able to find the language, to be able to find the right word. And it may be necessary for us to almost, perhaps even rather clumsily, to find our way into race, to find the, the language for it. In many ways, I'm, I'm not sure we do have a, a, a language for it. This was borne out in some of the research that I mentioned in the paper as well, that in which, you know, when asked about race, white people sort of crumble a little. They're not sure what to say. They don't know what to think, or they don't think it's relevant to even think about it. The question seems very odd. So distinguishing the superego in that sense, I think, is very important. And then another thing that Sedlak suggests is that we're also very much related to this, dealing with a far less explored area of, of the ego ideal. And again, for us as clinicians, that is probably especially important because we are in a, a sort of a precarious profession, really. We don't assume to have the answers. We have some very helpful theories, but I'm sure when sat with our patients, we are starting each time from square one in many ways. We have theories, but will they fit this person? Where are we going to be taken by this patient? We don't know where we're going. We gradually form our picture. We gradually bring in our awareness of theories or we start to associate, but it's very precarious. And I think our, our ego ideals can come in to, to drive us with the hope that we're doing good work or that we're engaging, whatever that means, in a way that can also cause blind spots. And, and that's what I think Sedlak draws out. As much as it may be a pathological superego that's stopping us from exploring something, it may also be our ideals that stop us. So, for example, my idea, my assumption that I was non-racist, anti-racist even, was an assumption that allowed me to sit very comfortably in my own naivety, in my own unawareness. I, I, I would be able to say, of course, I'm non-racist. Racism is very destructive, and I can see that it's very destructive, and I, I wouldn't wish that upon people. But I, I think that's a, more of a non-position. It's different, I think, to do the inner work to take the journey within oneself as to discovering one's race, as opposed to looking out at culture and saying, I don't like what I see. And I want to go back to this line that really encapsulated this within the paper. I had not developed a relationship to myself as the white man in the room. It sounds like an internal object that is also a part of an external object of our reality of our current world in our historical world in which we live, that the work and the journey that Jerome helped you to begin to go on was one of developing a more nuanced, understanding, difficult relationship with this white man that 
is in the room with you. Yes, absolutely. To imply that it's a relationship as well seems important to me because it is ongoing. I don't think you can work this out and arrive somewhere and then it's all done. I think what we're talking about is being on a continuous journey of having to have that relationship within us alive all the time to be thinking about whatever we take the white man in the room to mean. I think it's quite possible that the white man in the room is also going to change at times. It's going to be different. It was suggested to me in a separate discussion, is the white man a, a sort of a hostile force? I think in a way, at the time I felt yes. And I felt, certainly Jerome felt that to be the case. I still think the answer is probably yes, but not wholly. That it is not just about the hostility, but about power, about privilege, about assumptions, that the power to make assumptions even, about things that actually are of benefit to understand because they allow us, I hope, to get closer to understanding that the very real problem of racism and the way in which it can exist within us. I was taught, certainly my view as a result of the training was to, in a sense, not to feel afraid of bringing race up, of identifying the elephant in the room, as it were, if I can put it like that, without sounding too clumsy. But I think there is a clumsiness involved in, in that, because there is an assumption that's what someone is coming to therapy in some ways to think about, that there will be an experience of race to, to think about in a therapeutic sense. And what I found very interesting as my understanding developed and as the conversation went on with my patient was I, I came to, to realise that in a way he was far more aware of race than I was, perhaps won't be surprising in many ways, but he had been working his whole life, I think, in many ways on that subject because he had been made to. And he had been made to, I think, by what he describes as the white man in the room. I think what he meant by that and, and how I've come to understand it is the cultural side of race, the stuff that we bring into the room that is of us, that has been acquired by us in our lives, through education, through living in the societies that we live in. And I suppose, in a way, it brings to mind the very first sentence in Thackeray David's book, in which he says, being black in a white world is an agony. You know, as a single sentence to summarise racial experience, that's very powerfully communicated and very powerfully felt, I think, once you hear it. Once you listen, I think certainly what I found is once I did start to take a position, I did challenge my own beliefs about my views on race, you start to hear more and more the, the agony that's been expressed for decades. It's an ongoing problem that I think white people have been free to ignore in a way or to pretend isn't their problem. One thing that's that's nagging at me in this conversation is that we're talking about the white man in the room. And then all of a sudden, our identities, Daniel Weir, Jason Brand, my own racial identity is complicated. My own relationship to, to the 
patriarchy, my own relationship to oppression, to all of this is complicated. And how do we begin to bring in our own selves here in a different kind of way that isn't this sort of monolith of the white man in the room? I think that's very important, actually. It can be used, if it's being used as a monolith, it, it's probably something close to inspiring what we've talked about just a moment ago about this rather pathological, superegoic response, that actually it is more subtle. We are white men, but that there is difference. There is always difference. To assume that race is the only difference or the important difference is part of the error. And I think it's part of the error that, that the white man in the room makes which is to say it's part of the error that, that society makes, is to think that racial difference is, is the difference that needs to be focused on in, in a way. And I, th I think this is problematic because the answer is yes and no at the same time, that society is set up in a way in which, yes, it is the most important difference because we're dealing with the very realities of racism at all levels in, in society and within us. But we might also hope that when we look into our experiences as human beings. And once we start a conversation, once we start talking, that we discover as we get closer to each other, we discover that what we thought were real differences somehow fade away. I think it's probably more tricky for white people to come together and, and, and talk about race in some way with it, without it somehow being present. It, it's very interesting to, to start to notice how and when race comes up and who with. Mm -hmm. And the question which we've touched on in the past uh, as to do we think about race as white people? That Does it take the presence of, of someone of a different race to inspire that conversation to, to begin? How do we think about it? I'm thinking about how do we end our time together today there's two things that I want to acknowledge. One that just feels important to sit down with another white man and just talk about race together. The pacing of this has felt gentle, but also like we're getting somewhere in the conversation, which I really appreciate. Mm. And there's just been a sort of humanness, I think, to the conversation that, or, or just below it, I felt moved by your journey. I felt um, free to, to ask you lots of questions and just very comfortable in the conversation here. And so I just, I think that's probably a good place to begin to wind down here. Any reflections that you have or ideas that we might've missed or things that you wanna make sure to talk about before we stop for today? I'm very pleased to be having this discussion with you. And it, I think it is important to me that the paper has helped you, it seems, to think about these issues, but has helped to bring you and I together in conversation. Because I think for me, what we're doing now is part of the work that I'm trying to now to be doing, that it does seem to me important that this conversation is, is happening. The paper isn't the end product, but the beginning of more conversations, of more thinking, of more refinements, of more input, if it is the beginning of more conversations, then that for me is a very positive. I so appreciate your time. I really felt like we were able to move nicely together. And so thank you so much for your time today, Daniel. Thank you in, indeed. Thank you very much for, for having me and for beginning 
this conversation, I suppose, for daring to get in touch, really, and, and, and to in, encourage that we talk, because it has been very interesting. And I, I certainly look forward to talking more. Yes, indeed. So that concludes the interview with Daniel Weir. And I, too, hope it doesn't conclude the conversation. You can reach out to Daniel via his email, which will be in the show notes. You can reach out to me via my email, jason at jasonbrand.com. So that's it for the Ron and Shakir episodes. Thank you so much to them, to Daniel Weir, and to all the wonderful consultants who took part in this leg of the journey. Our next stop is going to be a couple clinical interview with the third and final couple of the season, Charlie and Yael. Please tune in for that, and we'll see you then.